0: super talk mississippi media production coleman taylor transmission servicing central mississippi for over 60 years their ase certified technicians offer dependable transmission services a warranty and record services call coleman taylor today for all your transmission needs
1: howdy howdy it's rhino here and i wanted to say thank you for listening to middays with gerard gibbert here on super talk mississippi
0: get ready get ready to go beyond the headlines
2: And welcome to Midday Super Talk, Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. A rather warm, and, a warm one, I should say. <laughs> it's a warm one. It is in store for us today. I didn't know we were going to have some more of that uh, stormy weather coming through last night it did in my house a bit wasn't it quite to the level certainly with the winds and hail that we have experienced of late but certainly pushed on through today is supposed to be just hot right what's and the lucky latest?
1: thanks to all that
2: precipitation yesterday you can come you feel it coming off the concrete honestly when you're walking about uh, is it still triple digits for today
1: I believe on the Gulf Coast it might reach triple digits, but uh, I saw the revised forecast, and I think the high for Central Mississippi is 98. Okay. It's not quite
2: triple digits. Okay. That's pretty dang close, though. You know, we established early on when I started hosting this program that the difficulty we would have in achieving consensus on so many controversial topics and in issues, is that we cannot agree on how many biological genders there are, sexes, genders, just how many, period. We can't agree, I think, the way most clear-eyed, reasonable people think, that there are only two. Well, a stark example of that now, a, bio- a biology professor at a community college in Texas, he says he's been fired. he's been terminated for, quote, religious preaching <laughs> because he's teaching lessons. Now, this guy's been teaching for 20 years at St. Philip's College in San Antonio, old San Antone. Well, he's been teaching that, you know, sex is determined by chromosomes, X and Y. Oh, no, can't do that anymore. <laughs> it's insane. He was accused of religious preaching. I can't get over that. Wait, I thought it was St. Philip's College. What am I what am I missing there?
1: Well, the ultimate irony is it's the same lesson plan he's been
2: using for going on two decades. Correct. Twenty years. So now he's been told that you can't do that no more. Four students apparently walked out of his lecture when he started with this. Blasphemous teaching that there are only two genders, and that's determined by the XY chromosome indicators, part of
1: one's DNA. Used to, if you walked out of a professor's lecture that you didn't agree with, you just got a zero. That's right. I know, because I did it. Okay. I walked out of a business (laughs) class where the professor was so backwards, like, no laptops. (laughs) Wait, what? You can't take notes on a laptop. I don't know what's on your screen. Oh, man. Uh, All right, fine. I'm out. Peaced
2: out and got a zero. Shouldn't really care what's on your laptop, honestly. If you're not taking notes, but you look like you are, that'll be reflected. And he gets paid either way. Right. Oh, gosh. So what happened? Did you drop the class I did. Okay. Went and found another one. Well, this this Professor Varky, V-A-R-K-E-Y, He's been teaching human anatomy and physiology to more than 1,500 students since 2003. He's received exemplary performance reviews, never been disciplined. But now he comes along and starts uh, well doesn't start, he, this year, he teaches this XY chromosome concept as part of his normal course of study in this class, and some students, I guess, get all whiny about it and go complain, then that's never happened before, and they fire him. He received a Notice of Discipline and Termination of Employment, stating that the school received numerous complaints about his religious preaching discriminatory comments about homosexuals and transgender individuals, anti-abortion rhetoric, and misogynistic banter. (laughs) God, dog. So (laughs) what you're saying is that he was just fired because he was teaching widely accepted concepts, right? Can't do that anymore. Oh, but there's no agenda. Don't worry about that. We're, no, there's no
1: slippery slope at all. <laughs> we're not it's not a social contagion, dog.
2: <laughs> oh man, so he does describe himself as a devout Christian, and I believe he's Indian American, as if, if best I can tell. Just, just I'm stating that solely based on his physical appearance. I mean, as in Asian India, by the way. Uh, Johnson Varki is his name. And uh, he says, yeah, they ran him off. He has retained counsel. The First Liberty Institute has jumped in. They are defending as well. They accuse Phillips College of violating a whole bunch of laws. It sure seems like it. Uh, Just wrap your head around that for a minute. You're in biology class. You're teaching human biology, right? And you teach this concept of the XY chromosomes in determination, the markers to determine biological gender. How long have we been doing that? Since we discovered it? I don't even know when that happened. A long time ago, right? Probably even before it was scientifically
1: understood and just... Normally understood.
2: Yeah. So you can't do that. Now, I don't know about this preaching religious concepts and principles. That's what they're saying. But you'd certainly have to think, well, that never bothered anybody in 20 years, and all of a sudden these four students show up, and they're aggrieved by it. They're offended. They need a safe space and all that sort of stuff. So he he holds this belief that God created humankind as a male and a female. Would somebody please show me an example of anyone who is breathing, walking, living today, who did not emanate from a male and a female? Somebody show that. Now, I guess somebody may hit you with this argument of artificial insemination. There's still a male involved, though. Still
1: requires a sperm and an egg. Yep. Even if they were joined in a test tube. Yes. They still have to be implanted into a woman to give birth. Hmm. Without a uterus, the miracle of birth is impossible.
2: I guess what bothers me is this, I think, connected to this conversation Auditor White, Shad White, and I had on Monday about this DEI just absolutely consuming the higher ed world, has been, but it's really intensified over the last couple of years. But if you were a teacher at this school, or a number of schools, and you constantly espouse, or it doesn't even have to be constant, but you share... These, uh, this narrative that America is fundamentally, historically, systemically racist, evil-wicked, and that capitalism must be replaced with socialism, for example, and just a number of other left-wing concepts, they'd they give you a raise, probably you get a speaking engagement like that communist that spoke at the University of Texas, one of their commencement exercises. Ran on the communist ticket as a vice presidential com, uh, candidate back in the early 80s, recall. Oh, no, she gets to come back and speak at a commencement exercise and espouse her left-wing communist views.
1: Because academia is full of empty-headed fools and idiots.
2: It's just unbelievable. But I thought these were supposed to be the laboratory of diverse thought and ideas.
1: Not unless you espouse the religious beliefs of the loony left. Which that's what all this is. It's the rainbow religion. It's got dogma. It's got preachers. It's got uniforms.
2: It's the leftist nonsense religion. Then we should not be surprised, as Shad and I talked about Monday, when these folks who have this stuff thrust into their brains the entire time they're in college, they graduate, they become executives, decision makers, managers at America's corporations, and often public sector institutions, and they just carry that same narrative, that same theme into their decisions, which is why you end up with a tranny promoting Bud Light. That's exactly where it comes from. It starts at this level. We're coming right back with more. Tim Moore on the program, CEO of Mississippi Hospital Association at 11.05. Thank you,
0: Birmingham! Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert.
2: Back in the Element Wealth Studios, once again, we've got Tim Moore, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, in the Element Wealth Studio at 11.05, Ira Melman, he's been a guest before, Media Director, Federation for American Immigration Reform at 12.05, will give us a rundown on uh, the, the narrative coming from the Biden administration about how they have reduced illegal immigration and uh, really how the media is compliant in pushing this narrative and spreading disinformation. But they can do it because it suits the left's agenda.
1: Well, the second a Democrat gets elected to the Oval Office, the fact checkers get a four year vacation.
2: Oh, speaking of which, what about, oh, uh, Hunter Biden? he got some problems. He's a piece of human filth. Man. Is, is there just... I mean, I, I know that at this point, everyone, of course, I should say, is entitled to due process under the law. Is there any doubt in anybody's mind that's clear-eyed about this, rational, logical, that this guy was orchestrating a pay-to-play scheme and benefited mightily, you know, and then files his tax return and claims memberships to a sex club as a business deduction, money for prostitutes, even to travel to pleasure him. He's deducting those on his tax return. Yet, it's his dad and the Democrats who say, we got to have 80,000, 87,000 IRS agents, 80 billion to fund that, to go after those cheating corporations and greedy rich people. When your son exemplifies the most brazen, glaring form of tax cheating, not just gray area stuff, you're trying to write off prostitutes. How dare you lecture anyone about cheating on taxes? And I can tell you honestly, when you start doing a deep dive into the ta- into the tax returns of the truly legitimately wealthy people in this country, the billionaires, they're like 14 bibles stacked up. I mean, these things are gigantic. And they believe that these IRS agents are going to pour through those and just find, there it is, there's a billion dollars you didn't pay us, horse hockey. That stuff's so dang complicated, and you know why? Because you made it complicated. The very people that are lecturing us through the years, through the decades, they're the ones that created all these lobbied up laws. It's so complicated. You think there's consensus on how to treat some of those transactions? I've been through that on a way smaller scale. Just in doing business combinations, it's brutally complicated. you got to hire CPAs, tax lawyers, and you got to be on both sides to, to uh, optimize the transaction for maximum tax efficiency. So you don't pay more than you truly owe. But when you start digging into it, this code section, that code section, it's ridiculously complicated. Hunter's case? No, that's just easy pickings, kindergarten level cheating. (laughs) Nobody thinks you can deduct fees to prostitutes and sex clubs. Even the average person on the street that doesn't know squat about income tax law can tell you no, that doesn't sound right. It's unbelievable. How they're so hypocritical about that. But they want you to believe, oh no, it's Elon Musk. He's gotta pay more. It's Jeff Bezos. I mean, you just go down the list. It's it's so it's so disingenuous, honestly, and it's it's somewhat duplicitous. But yeah, that's what they want you to do. Really is ridiculous. But Biden's fighting for the soul of the country. That's what he tells us. It's, um, there's just more and more examples as well, folks, about uh, just the craziness in this DEI stuff. And And I know we talk about that virtually daily because there's news on it every day. Lots of news. And lots of examples where it's gone awry, and it continues this march to mediocrity that we've talked about. But now you've got the nominee to be the Joint Chiefs chairman. All kinds of information has surfaced about him using race in the military in hiring. Now, this is something we've hammered for some time ever since General Milley said that white rage was the biggest challenge to the U.S. military. And we featured stories uh, from members of the armed forces that said, yeah, I was forced to do these privilege walks, and materials have been leaked from the Air Force Academy, for example, about the DEI training that, that uh, airmen are having to undergo complete as an example. It's West Point. It's all of them, honestly. And there have been some members of Congress, Republican members, that have shared concern about that. Marco Rubio is one. Thomas Massey. Josh Hawley. There's several others. Tom Cotton in Arkansas. They've expressed their concerns about, even Senator Wicker, he's expressed concerns about how the military is Become woke, as they say. And, and this is what, just to give you a feel for how when you put race and physical traits, and I don't mean physical as in being physically qualified for certain, uh, certain roles in the military, certain assignments, uh, certain jobs, if you will. I don't mean that. Like I I guess Rhino to be um uh to be a pilot on a fighter aircraft, you've got to meet some physical tests. Because otherwise you're gonna kill yourself or other people if you can't.
1: Right. Like you can't be seven foot two and fit in an F sixteen.
2: That's an example. You can't have high blood pressure. You can't for be example. legally blind. That's right. Gotta have good vision and you and you've gotta have um uh, just just uh, other good physical traits and qualities as well. You've got to meet certain tests. Makes sense. And you, like your pulmonary tests, for example. But this is what, and those are fine, but when you start considering race, which should not be considered, or gender, unless you can't meet the physical test. And we should not, we should not water down the physical test to accommodate Women, for example, or transgenders, um, would be, in this case, a biological female who transitioned, they say, to a male and claim to be a male, but they still, you know what, from their DNA perspective and the other things that make women different than men. It's just a fact. Uh, with respect to some of these, these um, physical abilities, they may not qualify. We should not dilute the standards, which make it easier so that they can qualify. No, that's not right. It's a threat to our safety. It's a risk. But, but this, um, this nominee says, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Yeah, it says, all of us have to seek out those diverse candidates to bring them in. And what we're trying to do in the Air Force... It's you almost go, got to purposely manage some of this. You can't let it. If you do it by happenstance, we won't change. In other words, you've got to go. You can't let it happen naturally. You got to force it. Right. Forced diversity, which is not achieving squat, that is not really attaining the goals of diversity and inclusion. When you force it, which means. You essentially just don't consider the qualifications you need to be considering. You place these physical traits such as uh, immutable physical traits. You can gain strength to a certain degree, right? But you can't, like, shrink or you can't grow your height once you can't you're an change adult. change your center of gravity. But, but, uh, and you can't change your race. You can't change your gender, despite what the left wants you to know. You can't change your national origin or your ethnicity. But those things should not be considered when you're putting people in certain jobs in the military. But he says, oh, yeah, we got to do that. Well, this is Biden's nominee for the Joint Chiefs. I mean, I get so much out of it. I purposely build my office and my team with diversity. And I hire for diversity
0: because they all bring different perspectives. We're coming right back.
2: So we just told you about a professor in San Antonio at the community college that simply taught that there are only two genders, a biology professor based on, determined by the X and Y chromosome markers. He got fired. Religious! He's a religious fanatic! (laughs) But, on the other hand... Like I said, if you stand before a group of students and tell them that America is fundamentally racist, that our most revered institutions must be dismantled. That we should open up the prisons, defund the police, just stop all border control activities, confiscate wealth from those who legitimately earned it and shove it out of helicopters to those who did not. And basically put government bureaucrats in charge of the private sector. That capitalism is evil, wicked, and must be replaced with socialism, even in some cases communism. Oh, that's cool, by the way. You can do that. Like I said, You'll get speaking engagements, a book deal, probably a raise, and guaranteed permanent tenure. You'll sit around the faculty lounge and talk about how bad this country is. Don't you just hate this country?
1: I mean, just look at old salad fingers up at Ole Miss. That's an example. He got tenure after publicly proving he's an idiot.
2: Called for totally inappropriate behavior, is what he said. Right? Put your fingers in their solid people that disagree with you or espouse beliefs from the right, conservative values. You gotta disrupt them. Hmm. So much for the tolerant left. Here's another story I wanted to share while we're on this topic, and then we'll move on. Arizona State. Spent a lot of time in Tempe in my business. Career because of an affiliation with a company based there. Loved it out there, by the way. Great golf courses in Phoenix area, of course. So there is a um, there's a, a group out there, that, a facility actually called the Lewis Center, and it there's a person who's assigned to essentially running the Lewis Center and Atkinson. She wrote an op-ed a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal. She said, I thought that Arizona State University, my alma mater and employer, were different. Pardon me, was different from other schools when it came to free speech. But goes on to say, essentially, I was wrong, and here's why. She scheduled an event. Uh, let's see, called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. And it featured some speakers that she thought would be appropriate for that. And it's this facility is more conservative-leaning in its content, its events, its speakers. Had Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk. Well, the faculty of the ASU Honors College were outraged at this. How dare they bring in these, quote, purveyors of hate who have publicly attacked women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and institutions of our democracy. They've attacked them. You know, because they said, "Uh, we don't think that old white guys ought to be twerking, naked white guys, by the way, on the streets should be twerking with children around and expressing their sexuality. That maybe kindergartners shouldn't be forced to read books that feature explicit pornographic content. Well, you hate the LGBTQ community. That's what you get. Or maybe... They, they think and espouse the principles, because I've seen Charlie Kirk talk about it, as I just went through, with respect to the, the uh, Biden administration's nominee to serve as the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that, you know, maybe we ought to consider, oh, qualifications and merit, you know, things like that. Crazy ideas, I know. Qualifications, merit, skills, physical abilities. Maybe we ought to consider those when we make assignments among our military personnel. Oh, well, you're a racist. What do you mean? You've got to hire that person because they're of a certain disadvantaged community. It's based on their race. It's race-based hiring. But that's not discrimination. Oh, no, that's just atonement. That's all that is. That's just leveling the playing field. Pay no attention to the fact that we all may die because we don't have the most qualified people at the right post in the military. Pay no attention to that. So these protests really went beyond a letter, by the way, that was sent uh, to the dean where they condemned the event 39 of the 47 faculty, are we surprised, signed on the letter. I'm betting they just couldn't find the the other eight. It wasn't because they didn't agree, because it's like 99.9%. And this is important because these are the institutions training the next generation of elected officials, of corporate leaders, of physicians, of engineers, of innovators, this ought to shake every one of us to the core, because this is the crap they're peddling. So you want to have somebody on campus that maybe doesn't share your communist views to speak to the students? Can't let that happen. Oh, they might learn what it's really like on the other side. They might learn the values and virtues of conservatism. We can't let that happen. We've got to brainwash them. Was it Logan's Run Comes to Mind, the movie? Remember that? Wasn't that the whole deal? Can't let you get old and find out what it's like to get old. You just got to die and renew. Remember, that's what it was. You got to renew. Science fiction movie. Same deal. Can't let them see. And when they finally got exposed, wow, look at that. Wrinkles, gray hair. They said, oh, maybe this isn't the best deal for us. We sort of want to maybe experience that. It's part of life. Same deal here. we got to keep them hidden from those ideas. Heck, Russia made a living as a communist nation over keeping their inhabitants in the dark about what truly happens. She should look no further than when the wall came down in Berlin. Oh my gosh, they were just blown away when they were exposed to what it's like. And people that did, were able to move across the wall, and yeah, didn't... when
1: the wall came down, which direction did people go? Right. Was it towards communism and socialism, or away from communism and socialism?
3: Mm.
2: So, nuance is just not allowed in a groupthink environment. That's the message. We can't have any nuance, can't have any divergent views... Can't let the students hear that. You got to comply. You got to subjugate, or you just got to be castigated.
1: You, you've got to be. It's because the left's entire belief system regarding DEI is nothing but a house of cards.
2: It is, and I think Thomas even said something about it here that I actually agree with. Is it's a, it's a shakedown. It's um. Yeah, it's just a jobs program. To some extent, it is. And I, I started thinking about—I I heard a great interview. It's too long for us to play, and it was with um, a lady who's—I think I get this right. She's a, a lesbian, uh, but she is. She started an organization. She serves as the head of it. Gays Against Grooming, or Groomers, something like that. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. So. Um,
1: They're pointing out that all of the ground made by the LGB community is being lost by the TI Plus part of the Rainbow Coalition.
2: No doubt. And she points specifically to these parades. So my wife uh, sent me an article about uh, naked older men in the parade in Toronto over the weekend, Canada just completely butt-naked walking down the middle of the street. Well, now I've learned that this has also happened, I believe, in Seattle. Could have been Portland. It's one of the, one of the big Northwestern cities. As well, in front of children. Well, this, this lady who heads the Gaze Against Groomers said, what do you people do in taking your children to this event? And she does make the point, You're, we're going backwards here. The progress we made, we just wanted equality. Now you're crossing the line. Now you're getting people to turn against us. We're subject to losing this ground because of these wackos that intend on foisting this on children. She even says it's despicable. Wow. We're coming right back. Stay with us.
0: days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
3: Just as I thought it was going all right, I found that I'm wrong and I thought it was right. It's always the same. It's just a shame.
2: That's all. Welcome back, everyone. Midday's. We are in the Element Well Studios. We've got Tim Moore, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, up after the break at the top of the hour. Ira Melman, Media Director, Federation for American Immigration Reform at 12.05. So yeah, uh, I did check it. It was Seattle, and it was numerous men with their male genitalia on full display. Had nothing on walking down the middle of the street in Seattle, in the parade, participating in the Pride Parade. And again, first, why are children there? Who in the heck takes their children to this stuff? And secondly, I don't, I don't really get it. Why, why do you feel compelled to show your privates like that? In because public. their
1: entire personality is wrapped up around who they enjoy sleeping with. I, nobody cares. It's their only hobby. It's their only meaning for life. It's just men, 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 men. I love men. Oh, Look at me. Pay attention to me.
2: Oh, my god! That's gosh. the entirety of their personality. So I'm, I'm looking at some photos. Uh, I will say they had helmets on, had, you know, Colorful hats. So they had at least one head, pun intended, covered. But the rest of it, no. And I'm looking at it. They're in the middle of the street. And people are clapping. You're clapping. Because they're waving
1: rainbow flags. Ah, Change out the rainbow flag with pretty much any other flag on the planet. And you got adult males walking down the street naked. They'd probably be arrested.
2: (sighs) Well, look, my hat's off to this. Gays Against Groomers founder and president, she, she's, she's a lesbian. She's a practicing gay woman. And she said, no, this is not representative of the overall gay community. I do believe that. I honestly do. And she said, you know, this creates backlash. It just, it foments the hate. I, I agree. So, again, nuance. That's something the left doesn't understand. It's just like the conversation Chad and I had uh, Monday. I don't care. You, you're a gay woman. You people marching and all that stuff, you, that's your sexual preference? Don't care. But you're foisting it, foisting it on kids. You want to include it, this sexually explicit content, in books that are in libraries, in elementary schools. No, that's wrong. Kids will figure this out. They all do. We all have. We've been through it. You discovered it. It's weird at first. You can't wrap your head around it. And then there are some, there's no doubt, that start exhibiting those tendencies at a young age. You've got to manage that at the home, not at school. So Rob Smith, I believe he's on Fox quite a bit, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking about something different. There is a, a black gay male. That's featured on Fox from time to time. He tweeted about these disgusting, honestly demented pride parades. I say it's demented when you're walking down the middle of the street, totally naked, in front of kids and boasting about it, euphoric about showing your privates to the world. That's demented. He says there is no joy. He's being critical of this. This is what he says. There is no joy. People are not jubilant. Keep in mind, this is a gay man. Very well known in the gay community. In fact, it seemed like the opposite. Everyone seemed very, very angry. At what? I don't know. Gays and lesbians in America... He's talking about the gay people. Gays and lesbians in America are the freest and most prosperous and corporate sponsored on the entire planet. That's absolutely right. We've said it so many times here. No, you're getting all the possible accommodations any demographic could ever get. It's front and center everywhere. By the way, even the Girl Scouts has an LGBTQ badge. You seen that? You just have to go to one of these events and practice in the activism. You get a badge. An LGBTQ badge. Well, you know what? I don't want a cisgender badge. I think that would be stupid as much as I do an LGBTQ badge. Nobody should be rewarded for their sexual preference. The same people who say, you got to stay out of my bedroom. You want to... Put your bedroom on the street. He's right though. Every corporation in America has gone out of their way to give this demographic. They get a whole damn month. And did by the way, um, what's a uh, Rachel Levine, General Rachel uh, Admiral, Admiral? Pardon me, in the Navy. A transgender woman means meaning. You have to keep up. <laughs> Was a is a biological man. That was is a biological male, transitioned to a female, serves as what deputy director of HHS. The other day, I think I may have sent you some video. We'll catch later. Actually, said we need more than a Pride Month. We need to celebrate it all year.
1: Sure thing, Richard. Sure thing,
2: Richard. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News with Tim Moore. Stay with us. Everyone, Hour 2 of Middays, back with you here from the Element Wealth Studio on this hump day. Joining us now, the President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, Mr. Tim Moore. Tim, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Well, good morning, sir. Good to be here. Yes, sir. Uh, I first just want to tell you that I really appreciate you inviting me to come down and speak to your group, uh, your oh. organization, uh, earlier this month. You,
4: you I, did I, a great job. Well, thank you, Tim. A lot of a lot of very positive comments, and we appreciate you doing that. Well, I appreciate that.
2: Uh, a lot of smart people in attendance that are trying to work through something we all got to have. That's healthcare. care. It's, that uh, it's complicated. Uh, there are no easy singular solutions to the many problems that um, are on the table for the industry. But you guys work through it. And so it's good to see a lot of smart people get together for a kind of a common goal like that.
4: Absolutely. I've uh, been doing it for 90 years. Ninety years. 90 That's years. unbelievable, isn't it? That's it uh, pretty impressive. Uh, All right.
2: So give us an update. What What's the status? I mean, the last time you and I talked, and I think what's been front and center, certainly in the state of Mississippi, or many of our hospitals are, are experiencing very difficult uh, financial times, yeah. and they're trying to make ends meet. Uh, what's the status now?
4: You know, it, it's still. Um, we're still facing the challenges that we were. Um, we uh, actually I'm on the road last week and this week visiting hospitals and, and hearing some of the same things um, I am, am excited to hear that in some of our staffing issues at least in some of our smaller hospitals is improving um, some of our, our folks that, that uh, left and went off on contract assignments have come back and um, are, are I think glad to be home and, and back with their community so those are positive things. The other side uh, of course we all know that uh, um, Covid created an increase in wages yep. that, that will never go away. Yeah, that, that that's there. So they're still having to wrestle with how they do that, how they how they meet those demands. And of course, the uh, just expenses in general have not come down. Just as they have not for us. I mean, uh, supplies, drugs, anything that a hospital has to pay for, the cost has gone up exponentially. And they're still trying to figure out how do they balance that. Um, interestingly, I. Uh, had run across a uh, an article earlier that kind of gets into some of what we're talking about here and, and kind of looking at what's going to possibly develop as we go forward. And the fact that uh, patient acuity is on the rise hmm. and is projected to continue to rise through 2033, that's not really good news hmm. for our hospitals because what we're seeing – What does that mean exactly? Just- well, if you look at um, – let me tell you where I got. Vizia is a GPO uh, that uh, a group purchasing organization. They partner with other folks. SG two is a part of that that does analytics and, and projections going forward, and and what they are seeing that over um, since 2019 to currently, the case mix index is up five percent. Now the case mix index. Determines the severity of a patient. Okay, how sick you are, what complications you have, um, what the diagnosis is, or multiple diagnoses, affects that case mix index. So you've got a sicker patient we see already, and that will continue to rise. And what's even more disturbing is that the length of stay, which is the time you're admitted to the hospital, the time you're discharged, the midnights, um, is increased by ten percent. Okay. So here, that all of that is in the direct opposite of what we're hoping to see happen. Now SG2 is also predicting there'll be a two percent increase in the number of inpatient admissions over this period of time, same period of time. So that is not necessarily a frightening thing because admissions are down so low in comparison to where they were prior to COVID. There's no indication that they'll ever get back to where they were. But we're looking at a situation for hospitals where you have a sicker patient that takes more resources more personnel to treat a complicated patient. So the complexity of the patients we see is is going to increase. It makes sense because what we're doing is we're pulling out the healthier patients or the less sick patients, let's say that there's no healthy patients go to the hospital anymore, but the less sick patients are coming out so it's changing that ratio. So what you have in the hospital...
2: And let me interrupt you there, sure. Tim. so in, by coming out are you talking about this this sort of um, a proliferation of ambulatory services, absolutely. for example, where absolutely. you just go in, whereas you used to go to the hospital, maybe you were there for two days for a procedure now that you could do at an ambulatory-style clinic, and you're there in less
4: than a day, oh, in and out, same absolutely. day, right? No inpatient, oh, no absolutely. overnight. No overnight. You're home.
2: Which is a more profitable service Right from a healthcare
4: perspective, it it, it could be then the long term and, and it it should be a less expensive service, right? Uh, Consume to, fewer to resources. So what that kind of gets to is how do we restructure this animal that we've created over time? Because as you know, it's like turning a battleship. Yeah, it, it takes time to do it because it is mm-hmm. so large, and and the complexities and how it all works are, are just. Uh, and you've got
2: facilities consumable. and organizational structures and Absolutely. processes and systems that are all built around the, the the combination of the inpatient and the ambulatory. Correct. And if a piece of your business starts to shrink, and you got sort of assets, you
4: got to now reallocate. I mean, I'm just but, I'm no, no, you're, you're you're spot on. Okay, you know, I, I was just reading where Walgreens is having difficulty getting their health care. Project on the ground. ground. Um, however, CVS continues to put money into theirs and grows it. Hmm. Um, and, and certainly, I'm not being negative towards CVS. Sure, but they that will be a different model in in the in the amount of acuity. I got you. In the patient that they treat. I got now. You. I do understand that they are working on some methodology to to look at uh, more chronic management. Uh, in those patients. That really gets on the healthcare uh, hospital side of the fence, but uh, you know, I think we as hospitals have got to adapt to the new model and determine exactly how we're going to compete against the disruptors that are coming into the market. Now, we still regardless of what we do we're still in a situation where we have to be able to provide inpatient care because our bodies wear out sure it gets to the point that the ambulatory treatment just won't get it yeah so uh you've got to figure out okay how do we make this transition but yet how do we shrink this inpatient model and move forward yeah and that's kind of where we are okay Uh, you know interesting some of the uh some of the other things is is looking at the the decrease a 13% decrease in retail uh or urgent care settings i thought that was very interesting now i think that's probably got to do with a lot of the decrease and i'm seeing i'm seeing them spring up with and, my own a- eyes absolutely and that's what but by 2013, uh, you're looking, their projection is a decrease. Wow. Uh, outpatient surgery is up 18%. Got it. Yeah. You that makes that. sense. Yeah. That, that's that volume coming see out. See that hospital. here locally. Absolutely. You yeah. see, Con- and then a huge increase on the home care side 20% increase in home care. It's a less expensive model uh, because that's going to take patients from your skilled nursing facilities. And yep. bring them home yep. and take care of them at home where it's less expensive. Yep. So, um, you know, some interesting dynamics coming forward. And, and that kind of gets on to one of the things that we talked a little bit about, and that's the CEO turnover. Yeah. Uh, and the concern of, of what's going on with uh, with CEOs and the, the changes that we see. Um,
2: well, all right. So, something else that, that just to throw into that, that complicated, convoluted <laughs> uh, set of dynamics there. Uh, You've got United Healthcare. I've been watching this. All right? So mm-hmm. United Healthcare, if I'm not mistaken, Tim, the largest uh, insurer in the country. Is I that right? Don't think so. I think they write yep. more policies. Uh, yep. Uh, than than any other.
4: I think uh, they've got the high stock price too. They do. And
2: um, <laughs> well, and and I think it may be because they they seem to be pursuing a uh, a strategy of vertical integration. Yes. So they recently bought. Home health care uh, provider a Metasys, yes Baton Rouge based company that's right full disclosure one of my biggest customers was a Metasys. okay and that goes back to 708 sure when I can't remember the gentleman's name was a nurse yep that had this the, idea that founded this company started it yep. became, became a public company yep you know what I'm talking about though and they just sold it for 3.3 billion dollars did well public company yeah. did well. Hundred one dollars a share to United Healthcare. Now they also just bought LHC Home Healthcare. I think they paid five billion for that. So it sounds to me like this big insurer. I was actually with an entity that sold to LHC. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, five point four billion. So United Healthcare, an insurer, appears to be really spending a lot of money getting into the healthcare delivery business.
4: Absolutely. Look! Look at twenty percent increase in home care visits by twenty thirty uh, by twenty thirty three,
2: and that's what they see, which is why they were yeah. willing to pay a premium, probably Absolutely.
4: for LHC and the medicines. Well, so they may be the backwards? largest. I don't know. It Seems like it to me. You, you know, think we started out with what? just go at Blue Cross and Blue Shield. It right. was owned by hospitals and physicians. Right. That's right. And, and we got out of it. Right. Boy, exactly. did we mess
2: up, didn't we? Uh, we exactly. smart, yeah. weren't we? <laughs> exactly. But this vertical integration theme seems to be taking oh, hold in healthcare. No question about it. Let's continue the Moving discussion. Along. You can hang around. I will. We, we'll continue the discussion good. with Tim Moore, president and CEO of Mississippi Hospital Association. Stay with
4: us.
0: that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling.
3: Hit it, go. Play it.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: The Element well studio we thank you so much for joining us it's Tim Moore president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association Tim was just giving us a, kind of a rundown of the state of the hospital industry in the state so this this vertical integration thing which is has um, occurred in other industries i I, mm-hmm. I guess I I just sort of woke up and said gee this is weird a big insurer like United Healthcare buying healthcare care delivery organizations in this case home, healthcare. home health care and uh, I guess they they see the the um, prospect of that in the future.
4: Absolutely, of course, we've seen it uh, in in other states uh, across the country on ambulatory surgery centers, clinics, yeah. um, freestanding facilities. As a matter of fact, um, actually, United may have been the, the company that actually invested in the freestanding ERs. Um, but they, they definitely have moved into that space.
2: And and those sorts of um, organizations, some have fared pretty well. Some have failed. That's, e, that's the correct. ER,
4: third-party ER operators. Oh, right? Absolutely, absolutely. If you look um, it, just historically, where the freestanding EDs were set up, they were in high commercial neighborhoods. Uh, that, they, and when I say that, I mean they were, were were in neighborhoods that the population was very well insured. And paid private insured, private, privately insured. Yep. And paid very high rates. Yep. So you know that that has not worked in Mississippi. Uh, we've not had anybody that's jumped on board with that. You only have two or three They've regions. Tried. And well, even regions in the state, it would work. Yeah. Um. You, you don't have anybody running the Mississippi Delta and putting up a freestanding yelp No. <laughs> it no. Just, it just won't work. So uh, hmm. those are challenges that that uh, we've got to figure out. How do we get through?
2: Yeah. Well, all right, so then we had a, a couple other things going on there. You and I were just talking about a, a recent report that ranked Mississippi worst in the nation in healthcare performance in the bottom 10 in a couple of dozen metrics. And is this what, what do you attribute that to? Is this Tim, is this a function of uh, poor quality care being delivered? Uh, by the industry, or is it um, just we have a sick
4: population? Because a lot of that's what they look at—the oh, yeah, outcomes. Absolutely, at. it's the outcome side, and and yes, we do. Uh, it, a lot of the issue. Matter of fact, in in that report. Um, and, of course, it was the Commonwealth Fund, which was a, yeah. a nonpartisan uh, research on it. Uh, one of the VPs was quoted as saying that, you know, the the first thing you could do in the non-expansion states would be expand Medicaid. Yeah. That would be the first thing that would move the needle on a lot of these things. Um, we have a population that, if you, if you look at, um, 200% of the poverty level. Right. Okay. And that's... You know, $55,000, 60000 a year for a family of four? For a family of four. Something right. like 200% that. 200 percent is. 200 percent. Yeah. So if you look at that population in the state of Mississippi, 30 percent of those are without any kind of health care coverage. That leads to part of our problem. Um, you know, certainly we've addressed some of the maternity issues, the postpartum care. Yeah. That, that's going to help uh, uh, in some of those measurements. You know, and other things that we were high in, we high in vaccination rates. We were, we were doing the right things yeah uh, cost we're good um, and part that is part of our problem our cost is so low but our reimbursement is even lower and it creates the problem of being able to do those extra things that we need to do to try to improve some of these outcomes hmm. so but no I, I think you've got in some cases a, a it's an education issue in order to get to compliance you know if you're going to take care of a patient they have to be compliant um, I was in a, a meeting a couple of weeks ago with counterparts across the country, and one of the things that we kept coming back to is that the healthcare system is broken. Hospitals will be the first one to admit that. But we cannot put all of this on the backs of the hospitals to fix. There's just no way. There, there's too many variables. You, you have to come back with the insurers, the employers, mm-hmm. the, the government, both state and federal, and the hospitals, and and sit down and say, okay, guys, this is what we want to provide now, how do we do that? Because it's got to be financially sustainable, both yeah. being paid and then also being able to pay your bills and, and make it a viable operation. There's, I I've,
2: I totally agree, and I thought for some time that to address these issues, you, you need a wide range of, of experts Absolutely. That, that come from all the major disciplines that are involved in this because healthcare care is one of those industries where there, there are there – Legal issues, obviously. There are public policy issues. There are economic
4: issues. Absolutely. There are clinical issues. There are ethical issues oh, as well. Qu- no question. And yeah, you know, that's one of the things that we worry about. If 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 you move in a direction to to siphon off the profitable business in, in whatever entity, then you start questioning. Okay, is the quality there, or, or are you going to take care of those patients regardless? or is it just from a profit motive. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the things uh, that that always concerns us when we start talking about healthcare because yeah. you've got to take care of the patient and you got to take care of all the patient.
2: You don't have the the uh, the latitude to say fire a customer. You can't tell the patient I'm sorry right. you can't pay or you're too sick, you're costing me too much, get out of here. Because I think most of us uh, that have been in the in the business decision making world, as I have, yeah, you every now and then come up across a situation mm-hmm. where you say you're just not worth it anymore. We're going to have to let you go.
4: Make a decision. That's right. Yeah. Now I will say that, uh, and I have seen situations, particularly in medical offices, is when you have a patient that is completely non compliant, will not do anything you you ask them to do. That's trying to help them, and I have seen patients. Discharge those patients. I'll be darn.
2: Well, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I hear this complaint regularly from. Uh, my my physician friends in, in my circles sure. socially, yep. they won't talk about that publicly. But privately, they say, "Yeah, it's crazy." They keep coming in, and they, they won't do. And when they even confront them with it, well, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you taking this? Med-? Oh no, but you're going to still take care of me, right? Like you're not getting this. You're not. <laughs> yeah. you know? I, I can't take care of you if you do right.
4: do what I ask you to do. I, I hear that I, a lot. You know, George. Part of that, though, uh, in some of those patients, is the fact that they don't have the discretionary income to go buy yeah. the medications, or to do follow-up, or to do what they've been asked to do. Now, that's not all of them. Yeah. Don't think that's all of them. It's not. That's right. I agree. <laughs> you know, I, I, we've got family members probably that say, well, oh, you I know. know, I know what the doc told me, but you know, I really think it'll be better to
2: do this. I think I may have shared with you before, <laughs> I, I, had, um, I, I was in a physician's office, I went, it was a specialty, and um, she shared with me, she had just seen a patient, a child, and was frustrated because um, she knew the parent of this child was not going to purchase the prescribed medication for the child, wow. and what the physician said. But well, she's got her three hundred dollar Dooney and Burke purse, or something to that effect, you know, and drove here in an expensive vehicle, but won't go spend the fifty bucks to go buy the drugs that she just prescribed wow. for the child. That happens too. It does. Um, as well as people who just don 't have the available money right. uh, to to buy whatever it is they need sometimes it's it 's uh, it's therapy sometimes it's it 's pharmaceuticals right. it runs the sometimes it 's just you know you're you 're instructed by the physician to to adopt certain lifestyle changes and you just don 't do it and wonder why you 're still sick that 's exactly right and that costs it costs cost us all that 's the point no, that you're, we're all paying for
4: it that 's exactly right I agree with that one hundred percent. I love, something just hit me too. We were talking about those statistics and going through to 2033. It kind of goes on the same thing why we all need to be mindful of our health. The three most rapidly growing issues or, or diagnosis were behavioral health issues, uh, neuroscience, neuro, neurological issues like strokes, and, yeah. like, and, and cardiac. Hmm. Those three things. And, and, you know, there are ways to prevent yes. all of those, yeah. at least to some degree. Now, there are chronic problems sure. that, you know, you just have to deal with. But most of us, if we would seek early care, and, and follow that, and listen to our physicians yeah. or our, our providers, then we could offset a lot of that, and that saves us all money. And we don't fare well in Mississippi in those three c- categories. We do not, we're at the top of the list on all of those, yeah. too. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, it's it's sad. So we've had some CEO resignations as well, a couple of major hospitals. What What's going on there?
4: You know, it's it's uh, it's the market. Uh, I was looking back, too, and, and um, uh, trying to – Pull some things together. Um, if you look at all CEOs, uh, all American companies, let's start there. So we get a baseline. Okay. If you look at the first five months of 23 compared to 22, it's up 54%. What? What's up? Exactly. The, the turnover. Okay. Gotcha. The, the loss of those CEOs. is Up. Uh, which is is considerable if huh. you look at that. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, you start wondering, okay, now what's going on? Yeah. Well, that's that's everybody. That that's the big companies you okay. know that's out there. Now, if we go back to hospitals now and you look, our turnover rate, at least in Mississippi, is on track to be greater this year than it has been in the past. Yeah. Um, now, if you look at, um, 21, 20, and nineteen, it was sixteen percent, sixteen percent, and seventeen percent year to date. We're approximating the turnover at about eleven percent for the first six months. Okay. So you know, uh, it's you got retirements. Yeah. You got all those challenges that you and I just talked about for the last few minutes. Yeah. That are creating a much much more difficult family situation.
2: issues stuff like Families. that. Yeah. So if I mean, I'm getting humans. close
4: to retirement then I'm thinking that and I'm looking at it yeah. a lot harder. I, I got you. I had a friend of mine tell me, he said, well, just look at the numbers. It might work. So
2: okay. <laughs> I get you. <laughs> Tim, appreciate you coming in, man. Good thanks to be here, for, sir. Thanks. Uh, you. Always enjoy the discussion. Yeah. We're coming right back with more, folks. Half an hour left in hour two of the program. Ira Melman, the media director with the Federation for American Immigration Reform at 1205.
0: I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Thomas and Greenwood, I don't consider what you said funny, man. <laughs> he's uh, he's not happy about the extension of postpartum care under Medicaid. And he you seem to be celebrating, Thomas, about the fact that the Greenwood LaFleur Hospital cut their maternity services. It's probably not funny to those who are pregnant that were planning on having their baby there and now have to travel a distance, and that could actually cause problems, honestly, when one goes into labor. So I mean, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. There's no doubt about that, and there are very, um, very strong feelings about that. Still, I'm waiting for you to send a letter, confront your legislators about drafting legislation, authoring legislation, sponsoring it, that would terminate the state of Mississippi's relationship to Medicaid. That's what needs to happen. Right, Thomas? Do you support that? Do you support Mississippi exiting Medicaid? It's a serious question. That's a serious question. Thomas, you're focused on one hospital. He says, I think it's funny that they cut the, the uh, maternity care before postpartum was extended. It's, you're talking about one hospital. You're not talking about the whole state. <laughs> the, the extension of Medicaid coverage for postpartum to six months doesn't just cover services delivered by Greenwood LaFleur Hospital. It covers the whole state. But again, I ask you, would you push your legislators, for Mississippi to exit Medicaid. Would you push your legislators, because I've seen people running for office, you've seen this, Ron, people running for office in the state of Mississippi that have said that the state of Mississippi needs to just um, no longer accept federal dollars, just reject federal money altogether, because there's strings attached. Yeah, there are. That's true. Often to receive t- federal money across a gambit of areas. Yeah, there's some requirements you have to meet. I'll give you an example. The, uh, one that's right now, that's related to this topic of health care. Signed into law by President Donald Trump, supported by everybody in the I think it was unanimous. In the Congress, was the very first COVID Relief Act, that was signed into law in March 2020, I believe. That was before the big CARES Act. The CARES Act was $2.1 trillion. This particular uh, law, I can't remember the name of it, the Coronavirus Relief Family Act, something like that, Uh, it was about $900 billion. And it included a provision in it, We've talked about it before, that increases the uh, the Medicaid federal match to the states by 6.2%, and that's starting to wind down now, but that was implemented um, as, as part of the whole COVID deal. And the idea was you're going to have – more sick people and uh, because of COVID, and we're going to increase the amount the federal government pays for Medicaid in exchange for that, however, states you can't boot anybody off of Medicaid. The so-called continuous coverage provision that went into effect, yeah, it was the consolidated Appropriations Act included this particular um Bill, the family's first coronavirus response act. There it is. FFCRA. So presently the state of Mississippi, since this was signed into law, March 31st, 2023. Uh, pardon me, that's when it goes out. Uh, signed into law March of 2020. March of 2020. And that increased our their match, the amount that federal government pays us, six point two percent. We've getting we're getting more money from the federal government to fund our Medicaid. All states do, as long as you don't kick anybody off. Once you're eligible, you're in the program. Can't kick you off. That was the the so-called string attached, if you will, to the to that increased match. Now that's over, and that's being phased out. Uh, started. The phase-out April 1, and that continues throughout the year until January 1 of next year. So the 6.2 goes to 5, then it goes to 2.5, then to 1.5, then it's totally gone. Well, at the same time, states are required to disenroll people off of Medicaid if they're no longer eligible. Now, keep in mind, for the last three years, they've been able to stay on it, even though they're not eligible even those who were no longer eligible, say, based on income, for example. Or in the case of uh, coverage for the the pregnant expecting group. Uh, They have their baby. They get their postpartum coverage for a few weeks. Now that's been extended to six months. But even in the last three years, you couldn't kick them off at all. So... This, this is an example. But I've seen people say that we just ought to reject all federal money. I've seen candidates for office say this. Reject all federal money that has strings attached. Well, all federal money has strings attached. I, somebody uh, give me an example of some that doesn't. Well, that means we would tell the federal government don't send us about 15 billion dollars a year. 11 billion of that, by the way, goes to Medicaid and education. Which also happen to be the two largest spending categories in the state's budget. Education is about 52, 53 percent, Medicaid's about 20. The state's portion of Medicaid is about 20 percent of the state's general fund budget. So we could certainly tell the federal government we don't want that money. So my next natural question would be. Okay, well, what do we do with this Medicaid program in the state? So Thomas says, it's not my job to pay for your health care, and it's not the proper role of government to force me, unless it's a socialist government. And that's the problem. We're advocating socialism and trying to burrow the lines and call it something else. It's really not socialism, uh, Thomas. If you look at the, the widely accepted... Definition of socialism, it is a form of redistribution, I'll give you that, and it is true that the federal government does stipulate the guidelines to a great extent on the operation of the Medicaid program, but the Medicaid program is operated independently in the states, within those guidelines, but there's a fair amount of latitude each state has in its Medicaid program. In the design and operation of its Medicaid program. And there are also waivers that can be sought by the federal government to do certain things that aren't within the guidelines, but you can get a waiver to implement those. Arkansas's done that. Indiana's done that. Louisiana's done that as an example. So I mean, that gets really, really deep and wide, but okay, I understand you say it's not your responsibility. Well, is it your responsibility to say, pay for roads that you don't use? Because you do. Is it your responsibility to pay for, I don't know, military assets that you don't use, you're not going to use? Is it your responsibility to pay for air traffic controllers that you don't use? I mean, you can just continue that line of thinking, that rationale out. I get it. All I'm saying is, the Medicaid program is nearly a $7 billion expense in the state of Mississippi. I've heard people say, Rhino, I know you have too. Well, you know, we just ought to let the the faith community handle that. So we're going to send the faith community a $7 billion bill? Think they can cover that? No. Mm. You think tithing would do that, for example? Nope not even remotely close. So the sad thing is, but it's just the stark reality. This state relies on the taxes paid in all the other states that flow through the federal government, and then make their way back to us to fund much of what happens in this state. Medicaid's at the top of that list. We get the highest federal match. The federal government covers about 74%. It varies from year to year, but on average about 74%, 75%. We cover the rest. We have the highest federal match of the 50 states. And that's because we have the lowest income of the 50 states. It's based on your per capita income, your economic status. But for the last three years, there's been a 6% increase of that federal match, which means the federal government has covered more of our Medicaid program, which has in fact contributed to the surpluses the state has experienced in the general fund. We're coming right back with another segment in this hour, and then Ira Melman with FAIR at
0: 1205. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbard. Yeah. Mm. Come on, let's get on with the show yes. on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: The Element Well Studio. It's midday's. Gary in the Berg, of course, is always a person who's concerned about the out-of-wedlock births, not only in the state but certainly in our country as well. There's no question that is a core problem, root cause problem for so many things. Uh, Gary and and our state unfortunately ranks at the top, but. It's just statistical fact, I know we've beat this horse to death already on the show for since I've been doing it. Rhino and I've talked about it. um It's just statistical fact proven that your chances of uh being a productive, prosperous, healthy adult who stays out of trouble are enhanced significantly when you come from a two parent home that doesn't mean that it's impossible for a person raised in a one-parent home to have a positive outcome as an adult, but statistically it's uh it's a it's a more difficult task. That's just the truth. And yeah, that would have an effect across the spectrum of society, Gary, not just the nurseries in the in the NICUs. The biggest problem honestly there just in talking to physicians personally, its I guess you could call it anecdotally, but these are people who do this for a living, it's what Tim was saying. It's lack of compliance. There's so many babies that are born that are problematic. The, the delivery is problematic, and then the postpartum period is problematic because the the mother, the expecting mother, simply does not adhere to the lifestyle one needs to when they're pregnant. In fact, a lot of them rhinos, you know, they don't even get prenatal care. They don't. I mean, they just don't. Sometimes it's because they can't afford it. Sometimes it's because they qualify for Medicaid to cover it and don't know it exists. And there's a there's a myriad of reasons. Sometimes it's because they just live a long way away and they can't get a ride. I know that's happened. Literally cannot get a ride to an OBGYN. Um, I mean there's so there's a number of reasons that contribute to this. There's no question, however, that um, a uh, a pregnancy out of wedlock is is a problem, and, and it can cause downstream problems, and it certainly causes downstream societal problems. We're going in the wrong direction on that. Actually, I did look that up. The worst in our period uh with respect to Single households, single-parent households in the country was 2012. It's slightly down from that peak, and I don't know what was special about 2012. But that's certainly a big problem. Uh, Let's see. Gerard, my job for 35 years is on the ceasefire tax line. Was working with DRGs and case mix index for Medicare inpatients in several Jackson area Hospitals, I'm so glad I'm retired. That's from Marilyn Hughes, my friend. Yeah, it's that's really gotten complicated and convoluted. No doubt about it. Josh from Laurel says Thomas is a guy that hates women. Well, I think that's a little harsh, Josh. I don't I don't think that's the case. I, I understand where Thomas is coming from. He's he's
1: just a prisoner to the libertarian mindset. And libertarians <laughs> never seem to understand game theory and the fact that you have to actually win elections <laughs> to be able to do anything as far as governance. So if your entire ideology and the foundation and platform planks of your entire campaign are a bunch of non actionable nonsense that's Political suicide. What's the point of even espousing them?
2: Ha! Uh, that's a mouthful. I hope Thomas isn't a hardcore pro-life individual. That'd be some cognitive dissonance on the ceasefire tax line. And and look, we, we're picking on Thomas, but he's not alone in his views on this. And and I and I, I'm trying to be objective. I'm trying to be sort of devil's advocate somewhat. Uh, I'm. I think I shared before that in 2013, so Medicaid expansion, which was a provision of the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, went into effect, became available to the states in 2014. And once again, Medicaid expansion, quite simply, is just that Medicaid uh, would be expanded in states beyond its original coverage model to include able-bodied adults with a with a uh, income below a certain level certain uh, level relative to the poverty level 138% to be exact but something that I would say to you Thomas that I would encourage you to think about you say it's not your responsibility to pay for the health care of others well keep in mind that medicaid covers a big coverage group blind disabled and indigent elderly who cannot work who are past that point can't do it Blind people are limited. Disabled people are limited. I, know, I understand there's some gaming of that that goes on, but that's the purpose and in the, in the intent and in the coverage group. How should society take care of them, or should we just tell them, sorry, you can't have health care? I mean, that's the reality of it. And it's also the other big coverage group's children in impoverished homes. We're taking a break right here. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, it's Ira Melman, Media Director
0: of... Get ready, get ready, to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: We are back in the Element Well studios. It's middays. Gerard and Rhino joining us now. It's Ira Melman, media director with the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Ira, good to see you.
5: Good to be back. Thank you. So,
2: give us a scoop here. The, um, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be accurate in its reporting of the data. Uh, vis-a-vis the border, particularly in the number of encounters, the number of those crossing in, the number of those released. I mean, just all the various metrics just don't seem to line up with what the human eye sees on video that's uh, captured there at the border.
5: Right, yeah. They don't want you to believe you're eyes. They want you to believe the propaganda that they are uh, spilling out to the American public here. Uh, if you've been paying attention over the past month or two, they have been claiming that they have gotten the numbers of people coming across the border way down. Uh, but their own uh, data, the data that was released last week by the Department of Homeland Security belie that claim. Uh, the, the, they are claiming that the uh, illegal immigration is way down. in. April, there were 275,000 encounters of people uh, attempting to enter the country illegally. In May, there were 273,000. You know, that is hardly caused to spike the ball in the end zone uh, (laughs) and run a victory lap. Uh, You know, And that may not even be the the full story. Some of the data still has to come in. Uh, But the fact is, yes, the numbers of people coming illegally crossing the border uh, of the southwest border and encountered by the Border Patrol were down in May. But everything else was up. Uh, the Office of Field Operations, which deals with the people uh, that the administration says, you know, you can use this phone app, make an appointment and we'll let you in. Uh, the number of parolees that they're letting in illegally. The president does not have the power to uh, unlimited, for unlimited parole into the United States. Uh, the northern border all of these numbers are way up. So yes, uh, they want you to pay attention to the southwest border, but they don't want you to pay attention to all these other places where their numbers offset the reductions there. So it's essentially the same and the administration ha- has no inclination to stop it now.
2: I guess the natural question is, Ira, what can be done other than uh, the other party, the Republicans in in the Congress, Uh, bringing people to the Hill to to testify, Mayorkas, et cetera, and and just trying to dig in and and force out the facts, the truth, for the people, because the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she gets in front of the, the whole press corps there and says, oh, no, the border's totally secure, and we've actually made it better, and we reversed all those terrible Trump policies, et cetera. But that's not what people are experiencing. That's not what they're witnessing.
5: No, it's not what they're witnessing. In fact, you know, you have Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, he is not just lying to the American public. He is lying under oath to Congress yeah. when he says the border is under control. You know, uh, unfortunately, there is not a whole lot of remedy other than to try to impeach uh, some of these officials. And as we know, that it is a very long and probably fruitless endeavor. So yeah. uh, right now it is up to the American public. You know, we have elections coming up. Uh, people have to base their decisions on, you know, how they think things should be run in this country. And if they think that their government is not taking the basic steps to protect the security of the nation, they need to make their decisions. Ultimately, it is up to the people. And and by the way, there was a Supreme Court decision earlier this week that, uh, or maybe it was last week, uh, that basically said the states didn't have standing to sue. So, you know, even the states uh, you know, you had Texas and a few other states suing the administration because they were feeling the consequences of the administration's refusal to enforce our laws. Uh, the the Supreme Court, for in an inexplicable reason, said that they don't have legal standing to even come before the court, hmm. uh, and so we're stuck with what we have right now.
2: That's kind of bizarre, isn't it? You're you're saying they don't have legal standing, but they're they're being damaged. I mean, they're they're having to deal with this issue. Yes. Uh, financially, with, with assets and, and uh, having to spend their resources on this. So, how could you not have standing when this is a direct result of failed government at the federal level?
5: You know, my only conclusion is that the Supreme Court just chickened out. They didn't want to touch this case. Uh, You know, you see that very often with the courts. If they're not comfortable with something, uh, they will just, you know, drop back 10 yards and punt. And I think that was the case here. Uh, But this is way too important for them to simply duck uh, a controversial issue. And, And by the way, if you go down that road, uh and say to an administration that if you don't like the laws that are on the books you can simply not enforce them right our whole constitutional separation of powers goes right out the window because the legislative branch essentially becomes meaningless at that point so you know some future administration might decide they don't like the environmental laws and they're not going to enforce those laws uh, it, it is it is damaging at so many levels uh and the supreme court sim- simply ducked it last week
2: yeah, that that is disturbing. Uh, now that you bring that up, I, I can see where if that becomes the standard, that could apply across so many other areas and in, in disciplines that uh, I, th- I think about just in business, how that could just tear apart the business world like that, because we rely on th- those laws and the enforcement thereof to carry on our economy.
5: Yeah, yeah it, it, we, it becomes dictatorship in four-year increments, and I'm not sure that's what our founding fathers had in mind.
2: Mm, mm, mm. So when the Biden administration says, well, these aren't illegals really crossing the border, and, and we've got legal ways for them to enter the country and to attain citizenship, I mean, is that totally honest? Is that the truth?
5: No, uh, they're just making up you know, so-called legal pathways for them to enter the United States. The law is very clear about who can enter and under what circumstances, and the administration is just completely ignoring it. Uh, they have established a parole program for up to 360,000 migrants every year from uh, a handful of countries, Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, Nicaragua, now they've added Colombia. They have no legal authority to do, to do that. The statute that established parole power said that it has to be done on a case-by-case basis and based on some compelling humanitarian or national interest, national security interest. Uh, That clearly is not the case. You can't do individual uh, inspection of 360,000 requests that come into the country under parole. Uh, In addition to that, Uh, Rather than having people cross the border uh, between ports of entry, which looks bad on television, especially as we head into an election year, uh, they have created a phone app that says if you make an appointment at a border entry point, uh, you know, we will give you a quick interview. We will allow you into the United States where you can spend the next 10 years uh, pursuing some fraudulent claim of political asylum, knowing full well that once you are in the country, especially in the country for that long, even if your asylum uh, claim is turned down, nobody's going to remove you at that point. So really what they're doing is just trying to move stuff around on the books. They're taking stuff. Uh, encounters off the Border Patrol's books and moving them <laughs> elsewhere, but it's the same number of people coming in, 275,000 in April, 273,000 in May. That works out to more than 3 million a year.
2: Man, that's in, that's incredible. That's the size of the state of Mississippi. So what's the solution here, Ira? I mean, we, we hear you know the former President Trump talk about building a wall. You've got uh, Ron DeSantis saying he, too, would build a wall, but that, that requires... Funding, and that means the uh, the Congress has to be on board with that. That was tried. Couldn't get that through. What's the solution here?
5: None of the, the funding was there. The materials were purchased. The contracts were signed with the contractors. The Biden administration basically abandoned those yeah. on day one of this administration. And, and by the way, it, it's not, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Uh, go to the Democratic side, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., yeah. You're saying essentially the same thing. So, you know, I think people across the political spectrum are starting to recognize it's unsustainable. The wall is very effective. And it's the administration that is the roadblock here. They're refusing to actually uh, the American public has purchased the materials. They paid the contractors and it's just sitting there rusting.
2: Yeah, as I recall, he reversed every single Trump immigration policy day one when uh, after inauguration. I mean, one of the first things he did was sign off on those, a, a series of executive orders, most of which um, were associated with immigration policy. And he reversed every single yeah. one of those
5: right solely because you know president trump had done it yeah uh you know i I guess out of spite and we're seeing the results the results are that we're getting unprecedented numbers of people coming across the border just about you know it's not just you know republican-led states like florida and texas uh that are complaining about it go to new york city eric adams the mayor of new york uh you know he's doing everything in his power to move people elsewhere uh, it, it is a national problem. I, I'm sure it's being felt in Mississippi, just like it is everywhere else. Something has to give here. Uh, the administration has to recognize that they are imposing un, uh, unsustainable burdens on the American public and on local jurisdictions, and the American public wants it stopped.
2: Even Adams recently said, we can't afford this. It's costing us at a minimum $5 million a day, and I think that was a month or so ago. It's probably risen since mm-hmm. then considerably. I appreciate you coming on the program and sharing your insights. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Thank you. We're coming right back with more here in the Alamut Wealth Studio. Please stay with us.
0: Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert.
5: Let's get on
0: with it. On Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Call up Trudy on the telephone. Send her a Lookiest man in
1: Dallas County Well
2: if you're counting your money you send it to government you might be 200 billion short just 200 billion because a watchdog report says 200 billion in covid aid dispersed by the SBA the small business administration it may have been stolen by fraudsters You don't say And that's by the way, folks, that doesn't take into consideration the money that was legitimately paid out but not needed because there were no standards for that. There were no criteria for that. It wasn't a do-you-need-it situation. And a lot of people have, have complained about that, that, you know, they shouldn't have got money. You've heard that in the state of Mississippi. We've seen reports, right, on the companies here that took money, but it was all legitimate, perfectly legal within the scope, parameters, rules of the program. The do-you-need-it question, (laughs) there's not a do-you-need-it test. You could have imposed one, but do you realize how dead gum complicated that would have been? Almost impossible, borderline subjective, do-you-need-it? You'd have had to have some sort of comparison of your business performance during the COVID period, when everything was locked down, versus before. And you can't just necessarily attribute it to just COVID. There are just normal business cycles, natural business cycles that cause ebbs and flows. But so we didn't, the point is we didn't have a do-you-need-it test, so-called means test. That's not even included in this $200 billion. That's the point. This is just illegitimately obtained funding fraud and guess where the fraud comes mostly abroad that's where the Russian mafia very well organized uses really smart technology people to penetrate systems hack systems if you will with cyber attacks and they extract data such as social security numbers and other pertinent information that is required to receive these loans forgivable loans as they are so it's just a bunch of crazy stuff that happened man 17% of the 1.2 trillion dispersed by the SBA it is estimated was a ripoff, incredible, and that's that was in the form of what are called EIDL funds, the Paycheck Protection Program, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, etc. So now they're saying yeah, big old, big old fraud. Not really surprised, honestly. And again. You know, we need to be honest about this. These were programs created in the Trump administration, Secretary of the Treasury. Mnuchin was really, he's the main architect of this. The concept was, and the logic was, well, the government's shutting down all the these businesses. We're not allowing you to operate, so we're going to have to give you some money to compensate you for that. That was the idea. And the Paycheck Protection Program the name itself stems from this, the requirement, which was just to keep people employed. And that was the idea. Well, we're going to send you money to make your payroll, that I means not designed to cover your profit, but of course many of these companies didn't need it. But more importantly, there are a lot of just fictitious companies created. Gosh, we shared the story right, right of somebody that was buying Lamborghinis with the money they got. Um, under the, the false-veiled pretense of being a legitimate business. I don't know how they worked with the bank, got all that through, but they did. And there was some, unfortunately, some shady financial characters playing as well that were making these loans administered by and through the SBA that were playing along with the whole scheme. But yeah, people were essentially shaking down uh, the government and taxpayers. 200 billion. That's uh, recently released. I was trying to find the
1: guy. Oh, yeah. It was Georgia man, David Estes. Yeah. What did he do? It was Vinath Udimsini. Sentenced to 36 months in prison after one count of wire fraud because he used $57,000 of COVID relief money to buy a Pokemon card. (laughs) Which now, weirdly, the U.S. government owns a Pokemon card
2: Oh, because they nice. confiscated it. Oh, geez. Instead of spending billions to hire more IRS agents, says Moe's, how about modernizing their computer systems to catch fictitious returns? Moe's the half. And uh, I will say that as part of that money, in the Inflation Reduction Act, it includes 80 billion dollars of funding to hire more IRS agents a big chunk of that about 12 billion i think is in fact designated for modernization of the revenue services technology which desperately need but it constantly needs it, right it's and it's a cat and mouse game whether or not that will catch fictitious returns that's just a hard one and the reason is here's what happens a lot of times these, uh, these hackers, these, these well-organized syndicate-type hacking organizations that breach these systems and pull Social Security numbers and other minimum information, they file returns. You don't know it's fictitious. There's no way to tell. It's electronically filed. It's just data. It's legitimate. matches the IRS's files with respect to a Social Security number, which is the identifier on the return. And it stays within the bounds of yes.
1: what raises red flags.
2: Yes, exactly. So it doesn't get kicked out. It gets processed. And often it's, um, what happens is it's returns that are filed uh, to receive the earned income tax credits. It's estimated that there's about $10 billion a year in fraud of that. And what happens then is when the legitimate, the actual taxpayer associated with Social Security number files, then the system says, hey, wait, we already got a return here. Under that. And it's not like you've got any other identifiers to figure out, well, who was that? Now, you could add biometrics. You could add some biometrics, but would you be willing as a citizen to share your fingerprints or your retinal scan with the government? Most people would say no. Well, so that you see the problem, Mo's? That's the way you could protect against that. Right. So he says every year we hear about hundreds of returns being mailed to the same box office and prisoners getting returns. That, that's not really the problem, though, uh, Moe's. The prisoners are entitled to that money, by the way. Just because they're in prison doesn't mean they're not entitled to the various tax credits if they qualify. Those are legitimate. Those aren't fictitious. Those are lawfully paid. Again, the problem is, by far, the big problem is, is, is what I've explained, which are these syndicates, these mafia-style hackers that get these Social Security numbers. So the, the big one that's still causing problems was the Equifax breach. You want to get to a whole bunch of Social Security numbers in one breach? You go to a credit bureau. They got gozillions of them. Um, so... When they figured out a way to hack Equifax and breach that, that was, what, eight years ago or so? Something like that comes to mind. Well, that's what they were looking for. I mean, it's not like they wanted your credit report. They wanted them dang Social Security numbers.
1: And it's not just for taxes for Social Security numbers. I mean, there's multiple examples of hackers getting Social Security numbers of children, opening lines of credit with those Social Security numbers, and then just compounding their available credit through other shady – like, they can fabricate an entire company and then send in statements that this Social Security number works for this fake company, and they make this much a year, and as long as they file a tax return, they can then use that information to get higher lines of credit to the point where you do that times a
2: thousand, you're sitting on a million bucks. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right, and that, that has happened. Um, when we come back, I wanted to pass on something specifically related to the Equifax hack. And it's because, uh, like every other major company and organization in the world virtually, their underlying network infrastructure, and in many cases security um, defenses, were made by Cisco. We were a big Cisco partner. After that happened, the Cisco partner community Kind of freaked out. Oh, my gosh. How did they penetrate the Cisco technology at Equifax? I'll talk about that when we come back. It's kind of interesting.
0: Okay. Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbett on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: in the Element Well Studios. So, I understand yesterday, Rhino, at the Mississippi Municipal League conference that the candidates for lieutenant governor, Chris McDaniel, and the sitting lieutenant governor, incumbent Delbert Hosman, spoke to the group, as did the candidate for governor, as a Democrat, Brandon Presley. Governor Reeves well, was not present, but I will tell you this, I, I did notice that Highway 90, uh, which, of course, is uh, the the road farther south in our state and um, borders the coastline there. It was beautiful yesterday, driving that. What I, what I noticed was lots of Tate Reef signs, and, and other candidates as well, but probably saw the governor's sign more than any, just eyeballing it, so to speak. Don't seem to be a lot of restrictions on signage there, you know. Thinking about it, some of them were fairly large. Brandon Presley did tweet. This would have been uh, yesterday, about four o'clock. It said Mississippians should shouldn't have to go to work sick, and employers shouldn't have trouble finding a healthy workforce. As governor. One of my first actions will be expanding Medicaid to provide health care to 220,000 working Mississippians. No matter how you cut it, it's just the right thing to do. So, (laughs) I always like reading, it's entertaining, is it not, reading some of the comments on these tweets, especially tweets from politicians. And one individual says, "I want to know for 2022 how much telemarketers fines, and of that total amount, how much was paid? What the heck's God got to do?" <laughs> one person says, "Pin this tweet." Another exclaims, "Can you explain why?" The only one that to me was kind of free from the hyperbole that made more sense than anything was. Wait, how are you planning to expand Medicaid without legislative support? That's true. You ain't doing it without legislative support. That's the way our system works. Thank God. You're not a dictator. The problem is that we've discussed on the program, at the federal level in particular, we've just seen presidents in the last few cycles become frustrated, shall we say, with the inability to get their agenda through the Congress, mainly because the votes aren't there, and the the old filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. So they decide to take to the executive order approach, and that's essentially what's running the country. I mean, we've all been affected more by single executive orders issued by the president arguably than any other policy at any level. Now, that's certainly subject to a debate, and I would be happy to do so in a friendly way, but that's just my opinion on that. Just as we were talking about immigration, most of what was uh, implemented vis-a-vis immigration during the Trump administration was executive order, and then every one of those were reversed repealed by his successor Joe Biden so one person on this <laughs> on this um, this tweet on this thread you don't look out for Mississippians as public service commissioner why would anyone trust you as governor and then another Rhino tweets a graphic full of red and blue hearts just little heart graphics they love it I guess Here's another one. (laughs) What would you do to help the January Sixers from Mississippi? (laughs) Yet another one says, are you a racist? Because that's what Mississippi doesn't need any more of. (laughs) Nobody really wants to talk about the subject of the tweet, which is Medicaid expansion. So something that I would also point out that I don't think is getting enough attention about the subject of Medicaid expansion is the reduction of payments from other federal programs to the hospitals if Medicaid were expanded. And let me explain. There's a program called the Disproportionate Share Payments, DSH, often referred to as DISH Payments. Well, that's based on a hospital's patient care um, allocated across the, the, the coverage, the payment of that patient care, really. so the payment. In some cases, it's non-payment. So if you have a high proportion of your services being reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid, which reimburse at a much lower rate than private coverage, or a significant amount of your patient care is delivered for free, not compensated. There are some formulas involved there, but the bottom line is the federal government will send you some money. It's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset, but some money. It's called disproportionate share payments. And really, the original design was to compensate Hospitals for having just a large amount of their their patient census be uh, covered under Medicare and Medicaid, which are just low reimbursing programs, but then, of course, more importantly, the uninsured population that they take care of. Well, if you expand, follow me here, if you expand Medicaid which means you've got fewer uninsured, right, less free care being delivered, then your disproportionate share payments are going to, to go down. They're going to be reduced. They're going to decline. So the numbers that are discussed here, in my view, we should have somebody do the math on that at an aggregate level and at an individual health care provider, primarily hospital level. Okay, if you expanded Medicaid, how and you just took your your patient census from last year, how would that affect your financial picture, your revenue, from the standpoint of, well, I'm getting reimbursed for those that are now covered by Medicaid? If they would have been, I would have received this money from the government, but because I'm being reimbursed, my uninsured care goes down therefore my disproportionate share payments go down so it's it's a it's a gross figure and then a net figure i'm searching for the net figure what's the true net and that's something that medicaid expansion proponents uh, and really opponents they, sh- they should uh, i think do the math on that do the homework on that and and convey to the people so they can make informed decision about who they support and and honestly more importantly provide that information to lawmakers so they know. Because on the surface, yeah, you would get you would get reimbursement for those who were uncovered, as Brandon Presley says here, we've got two hundred twenty thousand working Mississippians, and he's right, you have to have income to qualify. That means you're working, but you're you're Income is so low, honestly, you can't afford coverage. You may work for an employer that is not compelled by federal law to provide coverage. So they don't have a group offering. So you have to go out to the individual market and buy it. And it's expensive. I grant that. But this mathematical exercise I'm describing is important. Because on the surface, well, yeah, the federal government would send us a billion, and it's true. And our part of that would be about 100 million to expand Medicaid. But all that's true, but how much are you losing in these other programs? That's the point I'm trying to make. And I think that is, I think that's relevant to the discussion, to the debate. And then I would ask, uh, I would ask others, uh, Thomas, it's for you. So if somebody offered you a billion dollars, if you invested 100 million, is that a good business deal? And that's, by the way, recurring. It's annually. Is that a good business deal? Penn from Madison says, I'm glad there are smarter people than me working on this issue. It's tough for me to make heads or tails on this issue. And I agree, and I apologize if I'm digging into the weeds there and kind of glazing you over. But this is, this is important, and this is what we're dealing with. There are strong feelings on both sides. You've seen this. You've seen Brandon Presley say, "I don't want to. Exp- I, I, pardon me. I want to expand Medicaid. First thing I'm going to do, although you can't do it, sir. You don't would not have the authority as the governor to do that unilaterally." I've seen candidates running for house and senate. You've seen them too, of course, folks. I know you've seen it. I totally oppose Medicaid expansion. But if you ask them, what exactly is that? I'm not sure too many of them could tell you. Then the same is true down at the Capitol, because it's complicated. And it, it's, I'm not, not being critical. I'm, I'm just trying to point out that it is a very complicated matter. It's a complicated subject, and uh, we need to be informed to make the right decisions. That's the point. Stay with us. We'll do our best to inform you. We're coming right back with a final segment on Midday's. Stay with us.
0: Ah, it's so awesome. Midday's with Gerard Gibberts. Yeah. On Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Well, we're back in the Element Well Studios. We thank you for joining us. Ben from Madison says... With respect to digging into the weeds here on this issue, not at all. We need to get in the weeds. And and I agree. I just, uh, I, I know there's folks out there watching, listening that may say, man, this is getting kind of boring. But this is a critical, big issue uh, in the state. And I think you could argue that it was the big distinction in the last cycle between Governor Reeves and his primary challenger, uh, Waller, Bill Waller who supported Medicaid expansion, and the governor's made it clear he does not. And he has his reasons for that. Um, but I think that's honestly was a big factor in why people supported the governor in the primary. And it will be a phase. Brandon Presley's going to make this a major issue, health care and Medicaid expansion per se. The problem it's because he figured out that broadband isn't the winning
1: Strategy, he thought it was going to be. Well, I guess he spent you could the last, say what
2: three, four years working on that, campaigning on that, T- touting that, and really uh, reminding us in his speaking of the uh, the the New Deal and the FDR and the TVA and you know electricity and how we got. I mean, trying to, I guess, draw a similarity to this. By the way, uh, it was who was it? Jason was asking us about. Broadband earlier, Rhino? Yeah. Yeah. Uh how many states are getting yeah, all are, by the way. He asked how many states are getting the, the money for broadband? How redundant is it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um the the state of Mississippi, you may have seen if this was just announced two days ago, announced by Senator Wicker, forty-two, forty two point five billion total award. For broadband or total investment, I should say, for broadband in the country forty two point four five billion in the country, Mississippi will get one point two billion of that so I mean, with respect to the technical aspects of it, Jason, I mean we could gosh, we could spend hours on that as well, but there are you know certain systems and and uh, that that will be installed deployed by the various carriers in the state of Mississippi, you'll see a lot of that done by the rural electric cooperatives, because they've got the the so-called last mile, final mile egress uh, to the addresses that will be served, and so they're all jumping in, not all, but most are jumping in, the broadband business, and they've got the, the capabilities, the assets, the resources, the access. The, uh, the aerial assets in the, in the way of poles when they're literally installing the cable over some of the terrain on poles and then some's buried. I mean, it just depends, right? Uh, that's all engineered and designed by architects that do that. But therein lies the rub.
1: By the time all of this federal money trickles down and gets implemented because of the snail's pace of anything involving the federal government,
2: Will it be out of date? Yeah, I mean that's 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 something I I dealt with my entire career in the technology business, and there's something that we call technical obsolescence and functional obsolescence. So, the latter's when you got to worry; it's just not getting the job done anymore. Relative to what else is available, I could receive greater benefit from that, or, um, you know, there, there would be other advantages to upgrading, but yet I've got all this investment in this old technology, therefore it's now functionally obsolete. It's not technically obsolete. It still works. It just doesn't work as well as new technology, and I could get benefit out of the new technology. But it's, it's a great point. These are rather permanent assets. I will say that fiber itself... is um, is certainly with respect to a bandwidth perspective um, and reliability perspective, uh, it's got a lot of of, uh, durability in it, or or endurance, not durability, but endurance in it. But are there other technologies that aren't as expensive, aren't as costly to deploy, that would, too, have some uh, durability and um, um, could be deployed a lot faster? and easier to manage. Yeah, I mean those are just technical questions that you deal with in the networking business on a obviously on a daily basis. Um, And so it does still make you wonder, does it make sense to spend this money from the government perspective? From a private sector those are business decisions. Yeah, we may install this network and it may be technically obsolete pretty soon or even functionally obsolete, but we got to do it now, and we'll make our money off of it, and then we'll upgrade based on market dynamics. Well, that's, just, that's just basic business decisions there that they'll have to deal with. But, yeah, it's, it's a good question. With respect to the resilience um, redundancy, as Jason asked, Jason, that's actually more uh, at the core level, at the infrastructure level. I mean, you engineer networks. Um, with that resiliency built in. So that would not be figured in so much at the last mile unless you ran multiple cables through, through different routes. That is possible. And uh, some data centers have that. Mine did, where we did rely on a single physical connection. But it's mostly at the core infrastructure part. We're out of time here today. We'll be back in the studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless.